Greetings, fellow Earthlings. This is Dave Smith with another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. Uh, coming at you with another episode about homelessness. We're calling this Homelessness Part 2, Working Toward a Solution. Um, in this episode, I am going to share segments of an emp- uh, episode of Empire Files with Abby Martin. Abby's one of my favorite investigative journalists. In this segment called Homelessness Can Be Eradicated, Fight Big Real Estate with Nathia Raman, we are going to be listening to Abby interview Nathia Raman, who is running for L.A. City Council, District 4, on a platform of ending homelessness. She is an urban planning expert and has worked with the city as well as working as an activist trying to combat homelessness. So... We will jump right into this and listen to Nathia Raman here. One thing I often talk about when I'm talking to residents in this race is that what we see on the streets, the rise in visible tent encampments in Los Angeles, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. We're not seeing people who are doubled and tripled up in homes. We're not seeing people who are sleeping in their cars but tucked away in people's driveways using their bathrooms at night. We're not seeing all of the people who are actually leaving Los Angeles because it is way too expensive. And in fact, Los Angeles has had big demographic shifts in terms of who is able to live here and who's not able to live here. She brings up a great point here. So I don't know about your community, but here in Santa Rosa, where I am, uh, in Northern California, about an hour and 15 minutes north of San Francisco, we've got the largest homeless population of any suburb in the country and there are tons of people living in their cars in RVs Um, so definitely feel what she's talking about there area of the city and what we learned about what faced those individuals when they were experiencing homelessness is actually true for most parts of the city once they were homeless it was almost impossible for them to stop being homeless In that whole area of the city, for example, there was not a single walk-in shelter bed. There was not a place where you could use the bathroom, and you were welcome to use the bathroom. If you wanted to get a job, or if you wanted to keep a job, because many people who are homeless also are working, there was not a shower that you were welcome to use. Um, There was not a place where you could go in and talk to a case manager about getting your paperwork and moving through the process of getting housing. If you wanted to seek help for mental illness, or for addiction, there was not a place that you could walk to and seek that help. So we have actually designed a system in Los Angeles where homelessness is one of the most prominent issues that every Angelino thinks is facing the city. And it's very clear from looking at it. And yet what we've done is to set up a system that is not at all designed to help people. Bam. She just breaks it down there with great introduction. Um that she will elaborate on, but yeah, I mean, you know, people need a shower, they need clean clothes, Um, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to be going to a job interview if you've been sleeping in the same clothes for three days, so we need comprehensive solutions, multifaceted, that attack the problem from a number of different angles, a comprehensive solution. Anyway, here we continue with Nathia Raman. In a few neighborhoods, and that was an explicit 
policy of containment that the city operated under. Most people who were homeless lived in two or three neighborhoods in LA. There was a huge population in Skid Row, there were some people who lived in Hollywood, and there were some people who lived at the beaches, and that was it. But because politicians over and over again were able to avoid addressing the root causes of that homelessness, because it was contained in these neighborhoods, because it didn't become a politically salient issue in races across the city, which it is now, because they were able to avoid addressing those root causes, the problem has grown year after year. And the root causes really are housing policies. Um, our cost of housing here in Los Angeles has skyrocketed. Rents have gone up by 65% in the last decade here, while average incomes have gone up by less than half that. That number, by the way, 65%, is way more than the average across the country. So, it so wow. 65% increase in 10 years. I mean, that's off the chain. Uh, I saw this happen firsthand in San Francisco. Um... Well, I saw both things she's talking about. So the, the increase in homelessness, we used to have like a skid row and a couple other areas in the city where, you know, there were like skid row drunks, homeless guys that would be, you know, just drinking themselves silly with glazed over eyes and peeing themselves, that kind of thing. Um, but then it exploded and there were people, all of a sudden there were just, People that weren't that were not all drunk all day, sleeping in doorways all over downtown. Um, housing costs have become obscene. You know, our housing market has been completely commodified. Um, we have no programs to supply affordable housing. There's no, like, I don't know. There's, there's low-income housing projects, and then that's it. There's no push to provide low-income affordable housing but yeah so i don't know in my mind all rentals should be under rent control limiting rent increase to the cost of living index that way you know you get paid you get raises within the increase of rent otherwise you know it's just like wall street it's crazy crazy and crazy making so uh, here we continue with Abby Martin and Nathia Rahman. Um, you know, you're an expert on city planning. You have a lot of insight in this. Can you elaborate more on just the construction of housing units, how much are luxury versus affordable, and why this city has been built in terms of construction of housing to disadvantage poor and working class people to such an extent? So. Our land use is completely under the control of our city, um, and our council members really have an incredible amount of influence over everything that's built in their own districts. But the bulk of that new construction has been luxury or market rate construction, um, even though the bulk of what is needed in LA is exactly the opposite. So the numbers are actually staggering. Across the city, 87% of new units that have been permitted have been luxury units, while only 13% have been affordable. In the district where I'm running, District 4, 93% have been luxury units, while only 7% have been affordable. That is a choice made by our council members because they choose what to allow um, to give permits to. They choose um, which buildings are allowed to be built. 
so she hits on some great points here. First, you know, they're not building affordable housing. They're building luxury units because the investors get the bang for that. Um, you know, that's why in San Francisco, and the average price for a one-bedroom apartment is $3,500 a month. $3,500 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. That's obscene. Where I'm living here, an hour and 15 minutes north of the city, you know, that's pretty close to a mortgage on a $500,000 house. Pretty freaking ridiculous. But, uh, yeah, it's just, the numbers don't make sense. It's just, it's ludicrous. But anyway, here we continue with Nithya Raman. I'm loving this woman. Kinds of buildings that get permitted, the kinds of developers that are able to operate are also the same kinds of developers that have deep enough pockets to be able to fund city council races and um, to be deeply embedded with city hall politics. We have, in essence, created the worst case system from our planning. We've created a system where deep-pocketed developers are able to game the system by paying for city council candidates to get elected. So on every front where we've set up a system that could be designed to actually benefit residents and to build the kind of housing that we need, we've actually done the exact opposite. Boom. Oh my God. She is dropping so many truth bombs. This is fantastic. Once again, San Francisco, I mean, I, I, you could probably replicate, this is probably re being replicated in every city. At least it's, it's happening all around California. For sure, I saw it in San Francisco, and I've seen it up here in the Sonoma County wine country. Um, but a prime example is the Presidio in San Francisco. It's a decommissioned army base with tons of buildings. Perfect for homeless, homeless housing, um, you know, community service buildings, affordable housing. Could have all that going on, but no. It was privatized. So the military housing and all those buildings were paid for with taxpayer dollars. Then the city sold that land when the military left. The city sold those buildings and the land to private developers who then remodeled shit and converted it all to market rate housing or, you know, other commercial ventures around there. You know, film magnate and uh, megalomaniac George Lucas has a huge piece of property there. So, you know, the city had an awesome opportunity, but, you know, they obviously the politicians had been bought out by land developers who were chomping at the bit to get their hands on that bayfront and beachfront real estate in San Francisco which is now, you know, frickin' priceless. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, here we continue with Nathia Raman. Worked at City Hall in 2014, and I wrote a report about how the city was responding to homelessness then. At that time, there were 23,000 people experiencing homelessness, and the city was actually spending already over $100 million responding to homelessness across various departments. 
Um, and my report actually found that almost 90% of that spending was going towards putting homeless individuals in jail, um, which is a, you wow. know, a staggering percentage. LAPD has historically been our first contact for people experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles and really continues to be to this day. They are the ones that people who are on the streets see. They are the people who actually know homeless individuals by name, unfortunately. In reality, we should be building a completely different kind of system, a system where the people who are interacting most regularly with people experiencing homelessness are outreach workers, mental health case workers, and people who are charged with actually getting them um, off of the streets, getting them the services that they need to actually take, make their journeys off of the streets. We are doing the opposite here in Los Angeles, and that is a deliberate choice. That's the way in which we've designed our system. But a So not just in Los Angeles, that's happening once again, I believe nationwide, and I'm seeing it firsthand where I live now, and, and I saw it in San Francisco as well. And it doesn't make any sense, really, to have the police be first responders. Um, they're not trained in social services, and that, that brings up a bigger idea. You know, we've had a lot of police violence and everything, right? Well, they're not trained in de-escalation of a situation either. They seem to escalate the situation and then kill people a lot. Nothing against our officers. We need law enforcement officers. I just don't want hotheads or, you know, people with roid rage. So, not sure if we got cut off right there or not, but I've just, you know, nothing against our brothers in blue. We just need them to be level-headed. And I think we need multiple divisions in the police instead of just sending out, you know, big guys with guns. How about we start by sending out, you know, social services outreach, um, you know, to go make first contact with homeless people and at-risk homeless, at-risk people, um, you know, send some, some outreach out there to somebody who knows the so a social worker to refer them to, you know, available programs and services. And then we could have another branch of the police that specialized in de-escalating situations. Um, you know, then we could have a third branch, say, unarmed officers with net guns, tasers, and, and handcuffs. You know, and then as the fourth branch, we could have the muscular cops with billy clubs and guns. Um, but, you know, think about that. It'd be even cheaper, you know, because gun-carrying cops, you know, make 90000 bucks a year to start. So your average social worker makes like thirty grand a year, so you could have three social workers for every police officer. So imagine the services that we could offer, you know, and, and she's talking a hundred million dollars they're spending just on locking homeless people up. Well, imagine if that money was spent actually treating the program, the, the problem, trying to remedy it and come up with, with solutions uh, as opposed to, you know, but that's not the motive. You know, we've got for-profit prisons and, and a m machine in place that's just, you know, fueled by bought-off politicians. So anyway, here we continue with Nathia Raman. Do that. The only way, because putting someone in jail is not getting them out of homelessness. Um, the only way to do that is by 
providing services first. And that has to be the first line of response in the city. I Boom. So provide services, right? Because what happens? You throw somebody in jail. Well, then what happened when they were in jail? Um, you know, I was talking to a local homeless guy, and he was saying, you know, when he gets thrown in jail, all of his stuff either gets just, you know, taken by the police, or more often than not, they, you know, take him away, and his stuff is left on the ground wherever it is, and then other homeless people go through it and pilfer all of his stuff, so any time he goes to jail, he loses all of his shit, so that's not helping, right? Um, you know, the pol you've seen the police, or I've seen the police doing sweeps of homeless areas where they break people's tents and throw them away. So, like, oh my god, now not only is the person homeless, but now they don't have any shelter? Like, how is that helping the situation at all? So, we don't want to come at it with, with that, you know... jackbooted thug type approach at all we don't we want to provide services you know showers and laundry first and foremost right barrack style housing a mess hall a soup kitchen type arrangement with a big kitchen commercial kitchen phone banks to make and receive phone calls you need an address to be able to receive mail from at um, a com we should have a computer bank with computer training and life skills training you know people need how to need to learn how to you know navigate their way through life how to fill out a job application how to balance your checkbook how to you know how to shop for food that's nutrient dense on the amount of money that you have coming in you know we need to offer drug counseling and mental health services um, you know, someone to connect people with all these services and to put the plug them into the right pathway, you know, and then you need to provide a path out for people who can and will help them themselves and better themselves. Excuse me. And I believe that's most people. There's going to be a small percentage of mental patients or mentally ill people, whatever you want to call it, that are unable to do that, to un unable to stick with a path and accomplish goals and whatever. And we should help those people. There's going to be some, you know, drug-addicted people that maybe might have a hard time, but I think most people, if given treatment, can come around. Um, you know, if they're not too far gone and they have the will, boom, offer them treatment and a path out and a place to sleep and shower and eat. Man. You know, so then you offer a path out for all who can and want it. Job training programs. A job placement for non-skilled city and county jobs. Imagine that. So street sweepers, gar you know, picking up garbage, um, removing graffiti, anything that's non-skilled. And then you have training for, you know, slightly skilled. And then you could have apprenticeship programs for highly skilled. You know, so for street workers and, and carpenters and stuff, painters for the county and city, you could have apprenticeship programs for all that with a, a path that led to a good job with benefits and everything, you know. And then I think what we really need to work towards 
is affordable housing run by the government. You know, non-profit arrangement, so it's always set at a break-even and with set rent. Um, so you know your rent's not going to go up and you know you can rely on that. You know, also affordable homes for purchase, you know, to make home ownership available for more people. Um, and my vision of this are tiny house villages. Seems like a great option. Some for rent, some for sale. So you have a nice mixed community. You could even intermix, you know, some, you know, homeless tiny houses in there. So you don't end up with just a huge chunk of homeless tiny houses all by themselves. You know, there's plenty of, of city, county, or state-owned properties where this would work perfect. Properties that aren't really compatible for, you know, conf uh, conforming development, you know, traditional development, but that would work for little tiny house villages. Six houses here, 12 there, you know, 20 houses there, um, you know, but it's a simple Simple matter, but a very complex task, right? Um, but they're doing it up in Oregon, up in Eugene, Oregon. They're doing this. Um, they have one tiny house village, and it's called Opportunity Village. And that is temporary transitional housing. You can stay there for up to 18 months. And most of it is like, they're kind of like three-sided tiny houses. So more like a three-sided shelter than a house. You know, so, you know, it's not deluxe by any means. Um, and a communal kitchen and a communal building. And, you know, everybody's given chores. It rotates around and it seems to be working. And people transition out after 18 months. Then they have a second tiny house village that's affordable housing and this is key right this is part of that pathway out so the affordable tiny house village the it's a co-op so you don't own anything but you're part owner or you have a stake in the co-op right so your rent is set forever at either 250 or 300 bucks a month depending on the size place you choose and then you get to live in this cool tiny house. So they interviewed this one woman um, at Emerald Village. And she was saying that before this, she was homeless living in her car because she didn't make enough money to, you know, for first and last and, and rent. So by the end of the month, she'd be broke. And uh, so this is perfect. She'll be able to live out the rest of her life in dignity. You know, so what a fantastic option. So all we got to do <laughs> is get politicians to work for us instead of the money and interests. That's all. Like I said, it's a simple matter, but a very complex task. So, man, this is a, it's a deep issue. It's gut-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching. It's infuriating. It's all of the above. So here's more Abby Martin and Nithia Raman discussing the topic. Carson, 
to essentially export the homeless community to camps, detention camps on the outskirts of town and raise Skid Row to the ground. Can you talk more about this and how devastating this would be? I also feel incredibly frustrated because the kinds of solutions that the Trump administration is proposing for homelessness, a crackdown, uh, forced detentions, these are things that we wouldn't need if our city would just do their job. In the absolute failure of our city to provide the kind of services that we have the resources to provide at this moment, to create systems which keep people housed, which help people who are falling into homelessness to quickly and effectively get off the streets quickly. We have all of the resources that we need through taxes, um, um, through, our, through our two measures that we passed recently. Uh, we have all the resources that we need to be doing this. And in our failure to create the system, we have now allowed for a discussion where a much worse a much more hostile intervention is being planned and considered seriously. And that to me is absolutely outrageous. She brings up an interesting topic here. You know, by my house recently, the, uh, the issue of the Joe Redota trail totally blew up. Um, what, what happened is somebody had posted about the Joe Redota trail on the Nextdoor app and then it just blew up. The conversation had like 450 comments or something. People were just going, raging. People were either like, lock them up, or like, you know, more, you know, than compassionate people were arguing with those people. And, oh my God, round and round and round, 450 comments. Then the guy takes his video. So the guy had ridden his bicycle down the Joe Redota Trail, where up to 450 people had been camping in an impromptu tent city on a bicycle trail. So this guy, it was his favorite bike trail. He got all up in arms because, you know, the homeless took over his bike trail. And he filmed this video riding through it. And he stopped and highlighted, filmed this guy shooting up in the middle of the daytime. And, uh, and it went viral, man. It, like I said, it took off on Nextdoor. People posted it on Facebook. Then the guy sent it to NBC, and it went to all the cable news stations, went viral nationwide. Next thing you know, city council's getting harped on, and uh, all of a sudden they have to do something. But um, anyway, I digress. But so people, it's a very emotional issue. So... <laughs> I don't know how it came up, but the pest control guy at my place, you know, he was talking about it, and he was like, yeah, man, I don't know. They should just go away. And I mean, like, away to heaven. So, like, it's wild. Somehow... We've been pitted against the poor by the rich, so we don't see that the reason that there's more poor is because the rich are richer than they've ever been. Like, for instance, since uh, 2008, since the collapse of 2008, the top 1% have doubled their wealth. And we currently have the greatest income inequality in the last 100 years. So, 
All these things go directly hand in hand. You know, there are no accidents. So, anyway. <laughs> Rambling on. Here we are back with Nathia uh, Raman. I've proposed a series of community access centers in each neighborhood across the city. These are places where people who are experiencing homelessness can come in, have a cup of coffee, take a shower, feel welcomed, but also speak to a caseworker and start the process of getting their paperwork and moving off of the streets. I also think that these are also effective ways to help people who are experiencing mental illness or experiencing addiction to actually make sustainable steps towards moving off the streets. If you have mental health caseworkers who are housed at the neighborhood level, who get to know people who are experiencing homelessness in their neighborhood by name, that is the only way to build up a relationship of trust that will help someone along their journey back into housing, that will help someone along their journey back into mental health care. Right now, the system is designed not to do that. In fact, it's designed in many ways to terrorize people who are experiencing homelessness because the only time that you see the government or you see representatives from outreach um, organizations, from homeless service organizations, is when your stuff is being thrown away, is being through a very violent sweep. We also need... So, like I was referring to, so she brings up a great point that I just touched on, you know, by having cops be the first responders, you know, they show up, tear these people's, you know, tent down, take them off to jail. How's that helping anything? So we need to completely look at the situation from a new angle. Um, it's a societal issue, and it's a quality of life issue. Nobody wants to even see that because it's heartbreaking, right? seems like such obvious measures that our politicians should be taking, especially on a local level, because they see the emergency around them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable that they're not doing this. I think they just haven't felt the pressures. And I think a big part of the reason why they haven't been held accountable for this, in, in so many ways in Los Angeles, they have hidden their powers in order to be able to stay in a very well-paid position at City Hall through which they're able to access um, you know, uh, lucrative lobbying gigs afterwards or to continue in politics for decades. This cannot be the way anymore. We cannot allow our city politicians who have the level of power that they do and the level of control that they do over our housing and homelessness crisis to operate in obscurity anymore. Right, it seems like politicians do not want citizens to participate in local elections specifically, which is why people who could be the most politically engaged citizens on a national level have no idea, like you said, who their city council member is, when this is the most important thing. To yeah, really and... It brings up another great point, another great point, how, you know, local elections are everything. But because these people like their cush position and, you know, they like the money their donors and campaign contributors are throwing at them, they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to change anything. So more of the status quo. Like, wow, Abby Martin, I love what you're doing. Thank you so much. And Nathia Raman, I'm a big fan, and I am hoping you win this election. Wow, so... Let's continue with, uh, with these two amazing and wonderful women. The idea that we are not just 
thinking about public housing again, but demanding that it be built in cities across America is really, I think, going to have a transformative effect on how we think about housing and homelessness going forward. But even if Bernie won, we still need that local engagement and representation because there's only so much he can do at a mm -hmm. federal level. So just discuss those limitations and why it's so necessary to do what you're doing and be involved uh, in things like this. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Sanders campaign has been amazing in terms of just opening up the imagination of people, uh, in terms of raising expectations for what your government should be doing for you. I think the idea which should not be radical, that you deserve health care, <laughs> that everyone should have health care, that everyone should have a house. These are things that are now becoming part of what, people, what people's hopes are, what people's expectations are for what their government should be doing. But whether or not Sanders gets elected at the national level, I feel like we need to have people at the local level who can translate those rights into reality because if we have people at City Hall who are still beholden to the real estate in industry, who have a really narrow vision for what the city should be doing, for how we should be responding to residents and how we should be helping residents, then I think all those goals will go unrealized at the local level. Um, and that's why I think it's so important for people to do it all. I mean, it's hard because I know people have limited attention for political activity and um, you know, I think they feel pulled in a lot of different directions because there's so much happening right now. But I really do think taking local action is incredibly important and can potentially have the most transformative impact. What you're doing at the local level can change the street you're walking on, can change the house you're living in, can change the city around you, can open up the possibilities for you on a very, very immediate level. And I think, I hope, at least, that idea is empowering for people and inspiring for people, because that's the only way it's going to happen. Wow. Wow. These women just blew my mind. Thank you, Abby Martin, for another amazing episode of Empire Files. And thank you, Nithia Raman. God, I hope you win your uh, city council seat in the 4th District of Los Angeles because we need the kind of change that you are envisioning. What a, it's wonderful to see such visionary and powerful women taking their place in society. Um, man. So with that, I think we'll, uh, we'll close it down. That was... That was a good episode there. So this has been Dave Smith with And Another Thing with Dave. Um, you can also catch me on YouTube, And Another Thing. I've also started a group on Facebook called uh, Progressives Unite where we can discuss topics. And uh, you can also catch me on Anchor.fm. I've got an audio podcast on Anchor.fm and Spotify. Um, and that is And Another Thing with Dave. Hoping to add some more uh, outlets soon. But for now, we're on Anchor.fm and Spotify. So thanks for listening. Um, feel free to leave a message on this recording. One of the features with Anchor is that you can leave a message and chime into the podcast. So please feel free to do so. Please uh, feel free to hit a star. 
like and comment. And I will look forward to chatting with you next time. Peace out.